0: Welcome to The Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak, with me, Christian Chiller. This week I have an interview with Raj Dutt of Grafana, a very well-known open-source project that helps you visualise, log uh, your, your event data, your, your log data, your time series data, all sorts of data and nice visual dashboards. But first, here are my links for the week. <music> First, a link on ZDNet from Catalin Kimpanu on a Google Chrome experiment that crashed tabs in, well, probably millions, maybe at least hundreds of thousands of instances. You may not have noticed this because this was very specific to people running Google Chrome in Windows Terminal Services. But this is actually a very common setup uh, for Windows users in enterprise companies, which is a lot of people. And the result of this failed experiment was that suddenly lots of tabs went blank, a kind of white screen of death, as it were, and it froze the browser. Uh, There were steps to get around it, but of course, no one really knew what was going on. Calls to company tech support didn't really, well, they didn't really know what to do either. And then finally, Google admitted that they had enabled an experiment, um, which happens more often than not, or happens more often than you may think, actually. Uh, which was not working very well on Windows terminal services causing these terrible crashes and actually in many cases uh destroying work uh forcing people to to restart work they had, had hadn't saved and or wasn't possible to save and things like that i suppose the the reason i want to talk about this is this uh, this is not the first time that we've discussed uh, something this where a lot of big tech companies will have uh, what's called feature flags to enable and disable and experiment with experiments and it's relatively easy for them to do that without sending you builds out these days especially something as a browser uh, where there's various components can, that can be kind of live updated and this is good and bad because you can keep things up to date But that's the other bad. You can keep things up to date and change things without people really knowing they have been changed. Whereas a big sort of whiz-bang release, people, well, people at least know it's being updated. They may not actually check what has changed and a changelog and things like that. But especially in an enterprise environment where typically administrators will roll out software changes, they at least will check before rolling it out. But in this case, it bypassed those administrators who were also unable to do anything about it. So I guess it's a lesson to developers to to bear in mind that they are not the be-all and end-all and uh, that sometimes checks and balances are in place or, or barriers for constantly updating things are in place for a reason um, and that sometimes just enabling or disabling a, a harmless flag or feature can have way more unintended consequences than you may realize. Now, if you've had enough of Google Chrome but you haven't had enough of Chromium, which is what Google Chrome is built on top of and allows us to use so many of these wonderful extensions, there are actually many options. Uh, Google Chrome is just one option. I don't have Google Chrome anymore. I have not had it installed on my computer for probably at least six months. Opera is based on Chromium. Microsoft Edge is based on Chromium. Chromium is based on Chromium. But also Brave. I would actually, I've been trying to get an interview with someone on the Brave team for a while. I'm somewhat vanished off the communication thread but I will keep trying. Brave is um well Brave is made by Brave. I use it. I firstly started using it because I've been doing a lot of work in the crypto space and it's popular in that space because it has an inbuilt uh wallet. It has um the attention token which is quite fascinating. It sort of lets you collect tokens for watching certain ads, and then you can reassign those tokens to people who are signed up for the program and sort of make micropayments to content creators. And it works quite well. But even ignoring that, I quite like it because it's privacy focused. It's Chromium. So you get access to extensions and it's open source. So for me, I used to like Opera um, for similar reasons, but it wasn't open source. And I wanted to try Firefox, but then I don't get access to the extensions. So it's a nice sort of mid-ground to match all those requirements I had. It recently went into uh, to version 1 out of beta, I guess. And this article was specifically on the crypto Globe from Francisco Memoria. But this was covered in a few places. That since it went into version 1, its usage, or at least uh, search results about it, have soared. It is experiencing quite an up spike, maybe for some of the reasons I have already mentioned. There are still a couple of controversies around Brave, mostly to do with uh, its founder, who has a checkered past, shall we say, to say the least. Um, but it is quite a nice, quite a nice product actually. I'm quite happy with it. Uh, I've had a few bugs, somewhat relating to the last story, but generally they are fixed quite quickly, and it's available across platform, of course and you get access to Chromium extensions with uh, privacy-focused features that sometimes break websites, but you can enable and disable. And the whole BAT, the, uh, I think, uh, basic attention token, or brave attention token, I can't quite remember, is a nice idea. Whether it will actually amount to very much in the long run remains to be seen, but it's a nice idea. So go and check it out. The next article is from Fast Company from Cliff Quang. Called Apple Built a $1 Trillion Empire on Two Metaphors, One is Breaking. This is an article that somewhat mixes computing history with computing present to talk specifically about how certain ideas can make or break a company, but there comes a point when the company maybe has to recognize that those ideas are starting to run out of steam, which is what the, uh, the writer is claiming in this article. And in this particular case, the writer argues that Apple's three main innovations have been the Macintosh OS, um, whether we all can claim that was their invention is a whole other story. The iPod click wheel, which is an interesting one. Uh, he argues, he, I'm guessing, argues that this was the first interface physical at the time that allowed people to scroll through long lists in this particular case of music, of course, or audio files, of course. It's such a, it seems such a long time ago, I can't even really remember how revolutionary or not it was, but anyway. <laughs> and then the iPhone touchscreen. Again, not new, but we know that Apple is somewhat synonymous with perfecting, uh, in quote marks, ideas rather than creating. He then uh, goes into some detail about talking about how other companies have had similar Um, Fates, Amazon basically revolutionized shopping with the one-click mechanism, which they then licensed to many other companies, Apple included. And then the article kind of goes deeper into breaking down some of the user interface um, decisions that Apple have made from skeuomorphism, which is sort of largely now a bit defunct and a bit dated, to sort of flat design, I guess, uh, designs to meet the modern paradigm which have happened more recently, and to be honest, if you ask the article, I think it's an excerpt from a book, which possibly explains the the style as sometimes feeling a little bit sort of uh, philosophical with no real conclusions. Is it's it's interesting to read nonetheless, despite that sounding like a bit of a, maybe a negative statement. I found it quite interesting to read, but it's more sort of. Thoughts around the topics than than any concrete uh, concrete outcomes. And the article, and it is definitely an excerpt, concludes with the thought of that maybe because we tried to force paradigms into one another, like the the App Store is one that he kind of uh, quotes here. We've ended up with something that is a bit broken now because they have reached their natural conclusion. And he proposes the idea of um, new paradigms new metaphors uh, and this one he proposes is about relationships uh, we care about instead of opening an app we remain connected with people now this is interesting because as far as i remember this is actually what windows phone tried to do and somewhat failed so was it that windows phone was too early was it that no one actually cares how do you connect a relationship with someone to playing a game of flappy bird what's that got to do with a relationship for example um going on Instagram to broadcast. Is that a relationship with somebody? Not really. I guess the argument could be that we'd all be better off if we were doing that instead of Flappy Bird and Instagram, but I'm not 100% sure if that's what people want. So yeah, it's an interesting um, statement. It is from the book, uh, User-Friendly, How the Hidden Rules of Design Are Changing the Way We Live, Work and Play. So I'm guessing you have to read on to find out more. Uh, Maybe I will try and get the author on for an interview in the future. But in the meantime, have a read of this excerpt and let me know what you think. Uh, You can let me know your thoughts on anything you've heard in the show by finding the contact details at christianchiller.com slash contact. Next, in my regular SoftBank watch, I'm determined to be claimed as the person who first realised that we were worrying about the wrong companies and we should have been worried about SoftBank all along. This is an article specifically from... Uh, mobileworldlive.com by Manny Pham. And this is about how SoftBank and Line are forming a $30 billion company. Line are um, kind of like Facebook Messenger plus some other things, also pay, uh, based mostly in Korea and Japan. You may not have used them in Europe or America, but they are quite a big deal in Asia. And SoftBank, we already know investors behind Uber, behind uh, WeWork, behind many other companies, actually. And the title, the headline is slightly misleading. This is actually a merge between a SoftBank subsidiary, Z Holdings, which is actually formerly Yahoo Japan, so this gets more and more interesting, is merging with Lion, primarily, I think, for this uh, Japanese-Korean company to try and compete with U.S. and Chinese tech companies, feeling the pressure from both sides, I guess. And then it doesn't really go into any more detail about what this is going to mean. But it may also surprise you to know that Line has 82 million users in Japan. So it's pretty big. But Yahoo still has over 50 million active users in Japan. So it's bigger than you may think. So I guess this brings together quite a large cohort of people. Getting out of news, maybe into more kind of uh, interesting thoughts on things. Next is an article from Wired by Alex Christian, and I like articles like this. I've covered ones with SimCity in the past. What if the Soviet Union never collapsed? Meet the Football Manager fans, rewriting history. This is an article about uh, Mladen Barbaric. Um, I'm guessing he's from the Balkan world, maybe serbo croatian world, so I made an attempt to pronounce his surname correctly. Has been working through uh, a game called Football Manager. I vaguely remember this game, I think if it's the one I'm thinking of, where you can kind of build simulations and things of let them run. And he has actually created a whole world where uh, it's still, (laughs) the USSR still exists. The opening paragraph kind of says it, I will quote it here. The year is 3019. The mighty Brentford FC have won the Premier League for the second year in a row. The Berlin Wall still stands and Yugoslavia is a hotbed of world football. Leicestershire, meanwhile, has declared its independence from England to become a tax haven, leading to unprecedented success for Leicester City. Um, and this is basically what this guy has created. He's a, a formula journalist and he's tweaked the database of football manager to include an EU style Soviet Union, um, where sides can only sign three foreign players, but from mostly from within the Iron Curtain, but also many other. In fact, he made a hundred thousand changes, which is somewhat crazy. Um, and, and some of the outcomes of, this, or I'm not entirely sure if it's what he added, simulating this or how the game has ended up running. I don't entirely know how a football manager game does this, has created some quite fascinating geopolitical schisms and changes that you wouldn't expect to be quite so closely tied to football. I guess there's more to football than maybe I thought. And he also added lots of badges for defunct Eastern European clubs. Um, he <laughs> had a lot of time on his hands, maybe, but it's really fascinating. I, I don't know if you can uh read it, oh, not read it, but see it playing out anywhere. Maybe you can if you download the game. But still, uh if you would like to know about alternative futures, but through the lens of football, <laughs> then go and have a read of the article. And finally, on the game front, this is from Ars Technica from Dan Thoreau. I think I have quoted his column many times when it comes to board games about Tapestry, the mythical two-hour sieve-building game. Has it arrived? This is from Jamie Stegmeyer's Tapestry. I have been offered to play this game with some friends, but it didn't quite work out, but I still would really like to. Civ games, i.e. games where you build a civilization from scratch and build it up, tend to take a long time, even board games. Anything from two hours up to something like Mega Civ, which can take all day <laughs> and is extremely large and extremely in-depth. But they claim to have invented a two-hour Civ game. And this game has been divisive for many reasons. Um, firstly, some of their tactics for marketing and reviewing the game have been controversial and split the community. But also because to fit a Civ game into two hours, it actually abstracts a lot. And this has not necessarily been a popular choice. There's always a decision with game design about what you abstract. But perhaps one of the things people like about Civ games is the minutiae. Granted, I think there are actually other Civ games that kind of do this, Roll Through the Ages, for example, um, and others. Seven Wonders, for example, is building a civilization but abstracted quite a lot. But I suppose the the nature and the look of the game was that it, it looked more like a more traditional Civ game and it isn't necessarily. So a lot of it's abstracted. And this has caused some uh, division <laughs> in the board gaming community. Um, and the board gaming community is nothing but opinionated, much like many geek communities. So, have you played the game? I haven't yet. What did you think? Are you a one-star reviewer? Or are you a five-star reviewer? This seems to be the current range of opinions on the game. Again, if you have something to tell me, then head over to chrischiller.com slash contact and let me know. I hope you enjoyed my links for the week. And now here is an interview I did with Raj Dutt of Grafana. Enjoy.
1: So my name is Raj Dutt. I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Grafana Labs. We're the company behind the Grafana open source project and a whole lot more.
0: And I've heard of Grafana. Um, I've actually used it a little bit in the past, not so much recently, but I might actually have an excuse to use it again soonish. Um, hope so. What is, for the people who don't know, what is Grafana?
1: So Grafana is um, basically visualization and analytics software. Open source um, works with many, many, many different databases. So we're not—it's not a database. You know, we're not a database vendor. Mm-hmm. We work—we're uh, neutral. We work with a lot of different database vendors. But Grafana connects to wherever your data is, right? Wherever it's whether it's in the cloud, on prem, and it helps you understand and kind of unify all your data beautifully. Um, open source software was created by our co-founder uh, Torkel Odegaard in Sweden mm-hmm. about uh, six years ago. And uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, developers and users around the world uh, use Grafana every day.
0: And what would that, I'm guessing then, I mean, I'm asking a slightly leading question here because I, I know what it looks like. But um, is that the ability to then render that into dashboards, charts, yep. tables, et cetera, yep. et cetera?
1: Yep. I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the human brain is actually really awesome at pattern matching visually based on your data. So that's what Grafana is all about, right? Is we, we render charts, graphs, all sorts of visualizations, um, help you build dashboards. So you can kind of, you know, build the perfect, um, you know, picture that helps you understand your system, whatever it is. Right. And it's not just, uh, DevOps or, you know, servers or infrastructure, you know, IT stuff. People use Grafana for all sorts of things like, uh, you know, um, emergency rooms in Tokyo use it to monitor the wait times of, uh of different ERs across the city. You know, the, um, uh, there's a, you know, a few, um, you know, there's a lot of people using it even for industrial process control and sensor data stuff. Right. So, but to answer your question, Chris, yeah, it's all about graphs, visualizations, dashboards, those sort of things.
0: So to understand the, how, how Grafana sits into comparison with other, other visualization and analysis uh, projects and products, you mentioned it connects to databases. So is it, live data or is it usually like post event data or both or you know how do people <laughs> connect to it
1: yeah great question it's generally live data okay. right so the cool thing about grafana is and and grafana labs in my opinion i'm biased of course right but is we're not a database vendor yeah. right so a lot of other visualization tools or monitoring tools or just you know um you know software that does you know analysis tends to be tied to a particular you know database or technology And that's because the visualization tool is actually created by a database vendor, right? So, you know, it's sort of like, well, great visualization tool works with my, you know, this one database. And we think it's it's kind of a broken model. I mean, the whole world is, it's like the oldest lie in IT, right? The single pane of glass. And everyone is pitching, you know, providing a single pane of glass. But everyone's pitch is dependent on all your data going into this one database in order to give you the single pane of glass. And we think that that's just disingenuous, right? And it's never going to happen. And let's just stop, uh, you know, stop trying to lie to ourselves, basically.
0: I think I have a, a vague idea of what databases you're referring to, but um, and maybe we'll touch upon one of them in a minute. Because when you say you connect to databases, this isn't necessarily databases that people might use for more... The sort of the logic backend of the applications, like Postgres or something like that, is you're talking about kind of logging databases or yeah. Well,
1: it's a great another great question, Chris. So yeah, like logging databases or metrics databases would be the you know the most common within Grafana. So you know, for example, things like uh, Prometheus or Graphite. Or, you know, InfluxDB would be really popular metrics databases within our community, right? So, you know, for monitoring. And then you're absolutely right. Logging databases, maybe databases is a, is a broad word in, in the way we're using it, but logging databases like, say, Elasticsearch or Splunk. Yeah. Um, you know, and, but then, you know, regarding, you know, application logic and things like this, sort of over the last year or two, um, Grafana has added support for SQL. So sort of your more traditional databases, including Postgres, uh, MySQL, MS SQL, you know, databases that traditionally aren't used for kind of IT operational data, right? Like it's not really your logs generally aren't stored in SQL databases normally. They sometimes are, you know, your, your metrics, you know, sometimes will be stored in SQL, but this is sort of broadening the use case of Grafana to include sort of business metrics, um, you know, um, sensor data. You know, a lot of people want to put some, maybe some application data that is stored in SQL right alongside some infrastructure data or logging data. You know, that's useful to, to show context, right? Like, you're, you're probably not, you know, and that data may not all live in your log. So, it, Grafana is all about recognizing that, you know, your data is really spread out all over the place and it's valuable to bring it together in a single dashboard or even a single panel so you can kind of correlate it and give it better context, right? Um you know, like, I mean, you know, maybe you're, you know, maybe the stats coming off from the, from the marketing team that lives in, you know, some other SaaS vendor or, you know, even a Google Sheets uh, database, I mean, you know, database, um, you know, those are the, the Grafana is all about unifying data no matter where it lives. And most Grafana users have some primary databases, like what you mentioned, so for, say, logging or metrics, but then... You know, especially the larger ones, they've got another team that's using, you know, they that's made a different choice for their logging database, or their different choice for their metrics database, or they've gone and signed a contract with a vendor like Datadog or Splunk, and then yet another team has set up an app that's, you know, putting logs in SQL, and then, you know, at some point, what do you do, right? You can say, hey, everyone, let's all use the same thing, but most for most organizations, they're going to have this sort of, you know, heterogeneous complexity. You know what I mean?
0: Actually this is something that interests me quite a lot because you're right about context that um you know there's a lot of applications now especially in this more modern application design around microservices and I know you've been at kubecon uh this week I was at the one in Europe earlier this year um I was also just at uh oh my what am I having a complete blank where was I I was at la la la, la, la. I don't
1: know. <laughs> How that? It's all it's all blurring together for me too. I, I, I had I a conference
0: up. in Berlin where Grafana were there uh, quite recently. Oh,
1: probably um, probably PromCon. No? <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, I, to be honest, Chris, I'm losing track of our uh, our conferences too. Our developers are I? so bad. I don't know where I was. Uh, okay. I was I was
0: somewhere where you were there, and it was very relevant. And I can't for life remember it was. But anyway, um, right. Yeah, the, the, this sort of aspect of having multiple multiple parts of an application now returning form data in all sorts of different formats uh some of it in more standards some of it in less standards and trying to get context from all that is is quite difficult so yep. i wonder with a, with a, a project like uh grafana how much sort of massaging and hand holding do you do to help that happen or is it is there still a lot of configuration on the implementer's side, or is it the classic answer of it depends?
1: <laughs> it's a little bit of the classic answer of it depends, yeah. I suppose. But, you know, what, what Grafana tries to do is we try to – we don't we don't try to sort of abstract the different databases we connect to to, you know, provide like a lowest common denominator or something like that, right? There's actually some features coming in a future version of Grafana that allow you to do that. Like, so you don't – you know, you, you kind of have one – almost call it like one low-level query language to, you know, rule all the databases, yeah. which is kind of interesting. But right now, and, you know, it, which is which has its trade-offs, you know, it's uh, both positive and, and negative. I mean, but right now, we we provide the full power of every uh, database or data source that we, we connect to, to Grafana users, meaning we expose the full capabilities of the, the query language or API, right? So, if you're connecting to um, you know, Elasticsearch, you actually get the full, you know, sort of Lucene query language that, you know, uh, you know Elasticsearch provides, right? If you're connecting to, you know, Prometheus, you get PromQL, right? You, you, you interface natively within Prometheus and Grafana tries to make it really easy to do so. And what I mean by that is, you know, we go and build, you know, these query editors and point and click kind of, um, you know, query builders for all these different data sources so that we make it as easy as possible for, you know, for the users to interact with with those databases. So, in a lot of ways, we're actually trying to, like, along with unifying the, the databases uh, and the data for context, we want to ideally make, you know, in, in many cases, we're able to do this. But our goal is always to kind of make a point-and-click experience almost for the for the underlying data the particular database that, that you know you're interacting with. And there's something like 42 databases available that Profana supports today. Mm-hmm. But if you don't you shouldn't have to be a developer, right? Like yeah. ideally. You should if you have the context of the data, and let's say you're a, you know, let's say you're a marketing person and, and you know all about your, your sessions and your clicks and your conversions and your goals and, and everything like that, you should be able to not just consume a dashboard that someone's put together for you, you should be able to create your own dashboard and you should be able to, you know, be able to analyze your data without having to go talk to a developer and say, I want to get this view of things, which yeah, is, yeah. you know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the old, the old job of like the, the, in the days gone by, it was like the CRM teams, you know, right. I would like to know about the users we had last week. And then two weeks later, you, you get it back. and <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> by which point it's all a bit too late. You know?
1: That right. like, really was, was the question. Again, like oh, wrong yeah, question.
0: Like, not yeah, really uh, how businesses work anymore. I, well, a lot. Not, not all. But, sure.
1: Uh, well, you'd be, you'd be surprised. Yeah, I mean, no, you know. I wouldn't be surprised actually. <laughs> but, yeah.
0: um, I've actually had pleasant um, experiences recently where I've spoken about microservices and the sort of the streaming data pipelines with companies you wouldn't expect to be doing it. And they're quite fully on board and thus helping other enterprises you consider a bit uh a bit outdated to realize it's beneficial to them so you know you get evangelists and then it spreads and and people start to realize the benefits so yeah anyway um i'm always interested to know like what what made you or whoever it was who who started the project in the first place start it what what itch were you trying to scratch (laughs)
1: Well, I mean, I can't, I definitely can't take credit okay. for starting the project, right? I mean, our co-founder, Mike, uh, you know, Torkel um, started it before the company existed. And, you know, the story, it's like, I guess, I suppose, like most open source projects, it's all around scratching yeah. your own itch, right? So, you know, back in 2014, early 2014, you know, Torkel is in Sweden doing a lot of consulting for, um, you know, various uh, tech companies in Sweden, including, say, you know, eBay Sweden and you know, H&M and, you know, other, uh, other large companies while he's uh, kind of hanging out in Stockholm. And he just doesn't have the tooling that he wants as a, you know, consultant to kind of show people their performance data. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Graphite was available at the time, but it was really hard to use, right? And Graphite was something, you know, what sort of the original time series open source monitoring database. Um, and it was getting really popular in 2014 and kind of the DevOps monitoring community, um, you know, still is one of the most popular time series databases. Um, you know, even though it's, it's, I suppose less trendy now. Um, but he was using graphite and sort of really found the, the UI for graphite lacking and was, you know, wanted to create something that was sort of both more easy to use, but just looked a lot better. Right. Cause you want this stuff to, you know, look good and, and look, you know, beautiful and, you know, uh, you know, because that helps the people who are creating these dashboards look good, right? Because they, you know, they look, uh, you know, like heroes. So he he really wanted something that worked well with graphite, was easy to use, and looked great. And then he just threw this thing over the wall as an open source personal project. Didn't really expect that, you know, a lot of other people would like it. And you know, I wish he was here to tell you the story himself. But sort of the next day, his phone was melting down with kind of retweets and people, you know liking the project and talking about it. And then it just, you know, went viral essentially because, um, you know, classic story of, you know, software that really worked well that, Mm. you know, solved, a solved a very specific need. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think the timing was good because that was sort of the beginning of the whole time series data category, if you will. Right. And then, you know, now if whether you're using influx or Prometheus or, you know, graphite or elastic or, Whatever, I mean, times, you know, time scale, there's so many now. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, chances are you're using Grafana. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. And so
0: yeah. I think I first encountered Grafana in about 2015. So, not, it's relatively new, I suppose. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. It, it, it's funny because we we still run into people who are running old versions of <laughs> <laughs> So Our Toggle's is always like, "Oh my god, you you're literally like, you know, you're, you're three years old, and they're like four years old." You know, and I was like, mostly oh, well. just
0: doing it to write uh, tutorial stuff uh, for for a, a client, a, a database um, mm-hmm. that that was a, like a logging database of some okay. form. So it wasn't. It, well, it's not still running, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, right. so, and in many ways, the the, compa- the project seems to have followed a very traditional path for open source projects at a certain point. Um, you added the the commercial slash enterprise offering on top, which I'm guessing is Grafana Labs. Um, yeah. um So what's the difference between the open source project and the commercial offerings?
1: So we have two commercial offerings, um, you know, basically, Chris, we have Grafana Enterprise, which is considered a version of Grafana that has features and integrations that are really oriented at the, you know, our largest um, users, the largest companies in the world. And that's bundled with, you know, support and indemnification and, you know, SLAs around, uh, you know, critical responses. So it's essentially providing a little bit more and wrapping it up with, you know, um, Support helping people run, de-risk Grafana, run it at scale. Right, that's Grafana Enterprise, um, and so that's our you know that's one of our products. And the other product we have is Grafana Cloud. And Grafana Cloud is we will run a full observability stack for you, um, host it for you, manage it for you, scale it for you. Includes Grafana, um, you know, um, obviously it includes Prometheus for your metrics. It includes Loki for your logs. Uh, we'll store everything, just send it all to us. We'll just bill you by, you know, how much data you send us. So it's kind of like a, um, you know, fully hosted observability platform um, using completely, you know, open standards and open tooling, right? Like nice. Prometheus and Grafana, Loki. Yeah. Um, so those are our two products, you know, essentially one's, one's helping you run Grafana on-prem at scale, whatever your databases are. And the other is a full curated stack, um, you know, complete with uh, metrics, logs, Grafana, soon to be tracing also.
0: Okay, okay. And this is a question I have to ask a lot of people in your situation right now. You're not the first I've asked this. Um, How do you manage to compete in contrast to cloud providers who often offering very similar things? Um, Ironically, you're probably running on some of their infrastructure as well. Um, (laughs) you know it's been quite controversial in the open source world at the moment where the old business model for a lot of these companies is somewhat being pulled out from underneath them by the very people who were helping them in the first place Um, yeah no
1: it's it's such a a weird topic right because um yeah yeah. so you know we are obviously customers of some of these vendors because we deploy you know our cloud offerings on top of them um you know and then uh, so, so, I mean, that, that, the, 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 there's so many ways to answer that question. Let me just say a few <laughs> things, I guess. Um, we don't have any plans to, um, you know, come up with any sort of fake open source licensing um, yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of defensive games, right? We have, we have open source software, and that's, you know, provided under OSI-approved licenses like mm-hmm. Apache, Mm -hmm. And then we also have commercial software like Grafana enterprise and parts of Grafana cloud. And that software is not open source. And we don't, we don't want to play these games that like, Oh, look at this open code that's here. That's not open source. That's under this weird license that, you know, like our open source is open source and our our commercial software is commercial and also closed source. Yeah. So the the
0: commercial stuff is only (laughs) available from you. And uh, I guess you have to offer enough with it that people don't need to go elsewhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and you know the, the, the whole going elsewhere thing is really is really interesting too because yeah. I think a, lo- a lot of people are disingenuous when they when they look at it, right? Yeah. Um, or they're, they're they don't have a balanced view. Open source, you know, has always been about value creation, not value capture. And these open source companies are clearly much more about value capture, but they're built on a licensing model that is all about value creation. And they're built on a business model that requires a lot of value creation to happen in order to capture a small amount of value, you know, a small amount of it, right? That's, that is the model of open source. And I think a lot of people get kind of really caught up because the simple fact is that the, that the new distribution channel for software is cloud. So if you as an open source vendor can't, um, you know, be the center of mass for your distribution, then that's a, you know, that's a business model problem for you. Um, you know, you can, you can make an argument um, to someone like AWS that they're, what they're doing is not sustainable. Maybe it's not, you know, morally the best thing. You can make those arguments, but at the same time, AWS is in a and companies like them, you know, are in a position where they want to commoditize compute for their business, for, you know, for, the, for their cloud business. And they do that by running software that their customers want to run. Guess what? The software that their customers want to run is increasingly open source software. Mm. Guess what? Those licenses allow AWS to just run that software. Why wouldn't
0: yeah, they? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like- yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it's yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's let's yeah. Um I've lost much. Oh, yes. So, um I mean, I'm guessing with with your open source model anyway, you don't you don't necessarily know what people are measuring and and logging, because that would... We don't even
1: know who the people are. No, no, exactly, (laughs) exactly. But but from... I mean, 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 we we have a rough idea that there's about, you know, uh, 400,000 plus plus Grafana instances running out there. Yeah. But we don't really know uh, who's running them, uh, what, uh, you know, what they're monitoring, um, you know, what they're doing. Um, You know, we have some very... Yeah, you know, we 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 have some good ways to get a handle on it, but it's yeah. all just you know, so from odd, that
0: very right, little yeah. limited worldview you do have, um yep. from what people have told you and things like that, I guess what are what are some of the the interesting trends you may have seen through the eyes of their data? Um what are what are the sorts of things that people are increasingly monitoring
1: um I think, I I mean, definitely Kubernetes is is way up there, right? So, I mean, particularly because if you're running Kubernetes, you're probably running Prometheus. If you're running Prometheus, you're probably running Grafana, kind Mm -hmm. of thing, right? So there's a a really nice tie-in there. And there's a really nice tie-in with our new logging project, Loki, which works really well with Prometheus, right? So <laughs> we're, 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 we're seeing a really big uptake in, in Prometheus within kind of the IT use case. Yeah, yeah. But then the other thing I'll just talk about real quick is the non-IT use case has gone from zero to 20% of our community, which yeah. means like, you know, again, like whether it's uh, financial data, weather data, you know, how fast you're you know, wind turbines are spinning, you know, all that kind of stuff is is sort of super interesting to us. Right. Um, But, you know, with regard to IT stuff, I'd say, I'd say Kubernetes, we're definitely seeing a a big push there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like particularly because, you know, we're kind of focusing on it, focusing on that with Loki, Um, you know, and then I'd say the other, you know, other things we're seeing it, you know, are uh, people using the native cloud data sources that we have. So we provide, uh, you know, native. Um, you know, uh, we connect to things like CloudWatch or Google Stackdriver or you know Azure Monitor. You know, like every you know most cloud vendors um, provide sort of a metrics and logging platform that all your you know all the the telemetry from your infrastructure that you're running with the cloud will kind of automatically be there, right? Kind of automatically be on CloudWatch or Stackdriver or whatever, and traditionally in order to use that data customers would have to either extract it you know from say cloudwatch into wherever right or they'd have to go log into cloudwatch to look at it mm-hmm. which both from a you know flow standpoint and a usability standpoint wasn't necessarily the best thing right so it's sort of two bad choices one is sort of realizing that hey i have all this cloudwatch i have all these cloudwatch metrics and logs that I need to look at sometimes, it's and they're all kind of provided by, say, AWS for free, because I'm running my stuff on AWS. How do I look at that data? Choice number one, I have to pay to extract it all to some provider, like a Datadog or something, and then I can all look at it, like can look at all my stuff in one place. And I'm going to have to pay for that. I'm going to have to pay AWS to extract it, I'm going to have to pay Datadog to store it, and it's going to be delayed and, you know, I'm hardly going to look at it, but it's just all there because when I do need to look at it, it can be there, right? Mm-hmm. Or choice B is don't move it from CloudWatch and just log into CloudWatch whenever you want to go yeah. look at something.
0: Right? And, and this especially and, helps with the kind of hybrid cloud approach, I guess, when yep. you'll have different, yep. different sets anyway.
1: Yeah, and, and we give a new choice, and I think we're pretty unique in that regard, and this is a use case we're seeing more and more, is we say, look, Mr. Customer, choice A and choice B kind of both suck, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. We'll <laughs> give you choice C. Right and choice C is just use Grafana and then connect to CloudWatch and now all your CloudWatch metrics are available to you um, in real time whenever you load a dashboard. So now you're just going to pay AWS for a dashboard load occasionally or you know whatever alerts you need to run whatever you know uh, routinely. Um, but you're you're probably never going to even look at 90% of your CloudWatch metrics, but you mm-hmm. need them there because you don't know what you're going to need to look at when you're going to need to look at them. So there's no cost to just connect CloudWatch, right? So if you go look at a cloud, you know, let's say you've got, I don't know, you know, 10,000 um, pods at you know, or containers at AWS, you, you don't know which 20 you're going to need to look at. So you know, so you're going to copy all 10,000 and pay to store all 10,000 somewhere else? No, like just connect the CloudWatch data source. And then whenever you have an outage, you'll pull up whatever dashboard you want. And you're probably going to read 2% ever of the data stored in CloudWatch. So why wouldn't you just pay for that? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's kind of like giving the customer choice, like mm-hmm. still move it if you want. We'll mm-hmm. help you move it into, say, Prometheus, right? But why, why be forced to think like that, right? And I think the reason customers have been forced to think like that is because generally the the monitoring vendors are all database vendors in one shape or form
0: yeah you know yep yeah, yep yeah. and I guess uh, to keep up with whatever are current or you predict forthcoming trends in the in the in the space what's what's next on your roadmap for the next six months or so?
1: Well, we're gonna one one thing that's uh, exciting to us is we're going to kind of complete the observability picture mm-hmm. with traces, Yeah. Um, right? So, Grafana's be traditionally been strong on metrics. We've added logs, and we've launched Loki. Um, you know, the open source project Loki is going really well. The adoption the last uh, sort of eleven months, while the project's been alive, has been since it's been launched has been fantastic. So, one future. Thing we're excited about is um, we're gonna you you know you can watch for some announcements around the tracing space you know we're gonna be providing sort of interoperability with things like Jaeger um, you know so that Grafana you know kind of uh, deals with you know metrics data logging data and tracing data as you know three kind of first class sort of citizens of telemetry if you will Um, so that kind of completes the picture for us Um, and then the other thing we're excited about is. You know, we're also going to be kind of, um, you know, um, launching a couple of new offerings on our cloud <clears throat> uh, kind of towards the summer that really expand the capabilities sort of beyond, um, you know, metrics, logs and tracing into particular kind of use cases and, and applications. So, you know, watch for some um, announcements there too.
0: And that was my interview with Rajdit of Grafana. I hope you enjoyed that. So a few things coming up from me over the next, uh, well, the remainder of the year, I guess. I am at 5G Checktree probably right now, as you're listening to this. So if you happen to be in Riga, come say hi. Then I will be going to DevRelCon in London in on the 11th and 12th of December. And then that's probably it for the year. And then after that, I might be at CES this year. And I'm definitely going to be at South by Southwest. Um, I might even be in Lagos in February, but that is not defined. All of these are kind of subject to flight bookings and all sorts of things to see what I could afford right now. Um, so I don't have anything massively new to share. I will have a few new articles coming out very soon. Um, you can still find my uh, generative fiction roleplay game um, on uh, itch.io, One Day the World Ended. Just look that up or you can find it on my website too. And uh, actually, yes, I do have some news. Chip Shop, the board game I started working on a few years ago, took to Essen, took to a few game fairs, and then somewhat abandoned because I just got overwhelmed. We are back designing. I have a co-designer, Andy, my friend Andy. We complement each other well, and we are back rebuilding the game. So I'll have more news on that soon. And also my second book is, I think, getting to the end of a first draft. I'm hoping to put some time in over Christmas, I'm getting quite pleased with the results and I'm starting to think about how I'm going to release it. I might actually release it in a collaboratory way, maybe as a, as a Git book or something like that. I feel like that's what I want to do as opposed to releasing it as an actual, actual book. But we shall see. Keep up to date with me at Christianchiller.com. And as always, you can find my contact details, how to support me, previous shows, newsletters, all that good stuff on the same website. And until next time, if you have been, thank you very much for listening. Hey! <laughs>